You can ask what a poem means, or you can ask where the heat lies. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Tuesday, May 30th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we welcome Joshua Bennett back to the program. His latest book is A Cultural History of the Spoken Word. We'll talk cafes and protests and poetry slams later in the hour. South Dakota suicides are on the rise. The state legislature wants to help. Representative Taylor Rayfelt is with us. We also welcome our friend Whitney Rencounter back to the program. We'll talk about 75 years of Crazy Horse Memorial, the chief who brought the vision to the Black Hills and the sculptor who passed up years in Europe carving war memorials to dedicate his life to the mountain. We are broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. The largest pride celebrations in the state will take place throughout June and into July in Sioux Falls and in Rapid City. Organizers are also taking extra steps to support transgender individuals in South Dakota. SDPB's Jordan Rushi has more. Sioux Falls Pride and the Black Hills Pride Festival are on track as usual, despite a legislative session that targeted the LGBTQ community. Bills to restrict drag shows failed, while a bill to ban gender-affirming health care for trans minors passed into law. Sioux Falls Pride is June 10th and includes a parade and family-friendly events at 8th and Railroad Center. The festival features vendors, performances, and more. There will also be two drag shows, Friday and Saturday night, for those 21 and up. Rachel Poland is marketing director for Sioux Falls Pride. They say their group will even have events leading up to Pride. We are going to have an event every day from June 3rd through June 11th. The Black Hills Pride Festival is July 7th and 8th and features 18 and up drag shows, along with some youth pride events and entertainment and vendors in Memorial Park. Tony Diamond is treasurer for the Black Hills Center for Equality, the group sponsoring Black Hills Pride. All our vendors, everything has been tailored around family. Some parts of the celebration were up in the air as legislators debated several anti-drag bills. Diamond says her group watched this year's session very closely. The drag performances, yes, that was a huge issue. We weren't sure how things were going to be, um, what the outcome of legislation was going to be. Poland says it's difficult seeing the effects of the gender-affirming care ban for trans minors. It was, of course, really frustrating to see Mm -hmm. a lot of our legislature buy into misinformation um, in regards to the trans bills. Um, They were based largely on untrue statements and individual accounts that are not reflective of health care for transgender people and gender-affirming care as a whole. In response to recent legislation, both pride groups are adding special events to support trans individuals in the state. The Black Hills Festival will have an area set aside for trans people to share their experiences with others. The sessions will allow people to listen and ask questions in a safe environment. Diamond says having open events like this helps bring members of the community closer together. I think that's one of the greatest things that I've enjoyed in the last couple of years that I've helped organize Pride is that you have all facets of the community coming together and interacting and getting to know each other. She also says it lets trans individuals express themselves in ways they may not be able to do elsewhere. As somebody who is trans, it is fearful sometimes mm-hmm. being in this state. And um, we just want to make sure everybody has an opportunity to be who they are and in a safe environment. 
At Sioux Falls Pride, Rachel Poland says they will host a trans rights demonstration during Pride Week. It's just a gathering of people who believe that transgender people have the same rights as everyone else and that the legislature should not try to infringe on that. Poland also says the group has started a nonprofit social welfare organization to prepare for next year's legislative session. And that C4 is called Sioux Falls Pride Equity Network, or SF10, and they'll be doing some fundraising and getting started later this year so that they can be really ready for the 2024 session. Both groups also plan events for the LGBTQ plus community year-round, including youth proms, climbing events, and 5K runs. I'm SDPB's Jordan Rushi. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, we are wrapping up this Mental Health Awareness Month with a closer look at South Dakota's alarming suicide rates, including how the state legislature wants to help. This session, lawmakers passed House Bill 1079, and that law earmarks $2 million from the general fund to create and strengthen suicide prevention resources in the state. Representative Taylor Rayfelt was the prime sponsor of 1079. She's also assistant majority leader and vice chair of the House Committee on Health and Human Services. Representative Rayfelt joins me now in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. Welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, let's talk a little bit about what the problem is. Um, the numbers that you, you wrote uh, um, an editorial or a column to be published in print uh, publications across the state. You're joining us here on the radio. The numbers are on the rise. They are. It's quite alarming. And what's really alarming to me is that 5 to 35-year-olds is the number one, number one leading cause of death. And for me, when I think about my own children, I have a 6 and an 8-year-old almost and one on the way, it really is important to me that our kids are not feeling despair and that if they are, that we're having a message that there's an ability to take care of that and that we have some resources around them to help them. Yeah. It probably goes without saying why suicide can be so devastating to families. But we were talking before we turned on the mics about a cousin of mine who died by suicide. And this morning when I knew we were going to have this conversation, I looked up his obituary again, and it put me back in that space. So if you're listening to us now and this conversation is doing that same thing for you, 988 is the number that you can call if you need to connect with resources before we're even done talking. But the the tale of grief, the the you know the atmosphere of grief, for me has not lightened much since 2008 after losing him. The families suffer for a long time because of death and loss. Yes, I mean I think people don't realize that there's a generational impact mm -hmm. when somebody dies by suicide. I also experienced it in my own life. I've had two family members die by suicide. And one of them was my dad's best friend, and I really watched it shatter him as a whole person. Mm -hmm. And it's it's really shattered him for years. And he's had to go through his own process and his own ability to seek mental health help and awareness of himself mm -hmm. as a part of that process. So when somebody dies by suicide, it has this kind of waterfall effect. And also people are just seem to be afraid to talk about it. They're right. afraid to acknowledge it as an issue. And so that's partly why I wrote that article is to try to bring more awareness around suicide and mental health and make sure that people understand that we should be talking about it more. It shouldn't be a taboo, a taboo thing that people don't want to talk about. We should be able to talk about the resources that are available and then also try to work toward um, bringing more people into the circle of working toward 
preventing more suicide loss. This has touched our lives. Um, there is help, there is resource, there are resources, but there are not nearly enough, no. which is what the, the House bill is intending to do. How will it be implemented? How will it be rolled out? Yeah, well, I'm really excited about it. So House Bill 1079, it looks at currently existing programs, which I'll give a shout out to Lost and Found as an organization that's working within our Regents institutions to provide peer support. So when somebody's having an issue, what they found through data is that, you know, young people don't want to go to a counselor or somebody older than them, they want to talk to a peer. Mm -hmm. And so we want to make sure that that goes into the K through 12 as well. So part of the money will go toward that. We also need some data collection. So we don't have data that tells us why something's happening or how to intervene and make things better. How do we know the best next steps? So that's part of it as well. And then how do schools have resources when they need to respond to a death by suicide? There's not a lot there. And so mm -hmm. part of this funding will be meant to serve in that purpose as well. When there's a death by suicide on a campus or within a school, what kind of resources do they have for the, the students that are still there? And how do they respond to that? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about some of the work that's already been done. I was looking at sdsuicideprevention.org, um, a uh, task force, I think, that the governor put together a few years ago. Uh, suicide prevention plan with some priority strategies. This this House bill is intersecting with a lot of that work. Where do you hope um, that intersection is the most valuable? Yeah, the Department of Health has done a lot of great work, and that Suicide Prevention Coalition does a lot of great work together. And part of it is, I think you have to think about this prevention effort as having a bunch of different buckets. Mm -hmm. And you can't just have one bucket. We have to have a bunch, of, a bunch of them that come together and come to a solution. But part of the things that they've been doing really well, I think, is advertising the 988 hotline. Mm -hmm. Talking about the Helpline Center, the Helpline Center does a ton of education. If you have an organization that you want people to have a better understanding of suicide prevention, mental health in general, they do all of these different workshops. And then also the coalition in general, I've seen a lot of their Facebook ads. I'm not sure if you have, yeah, yeah, but they yeah. have a ton of um, information on suicide that pops up regularly, which is the marketing. I think it's a great thing to, again, bring awareness. Yeah, that communication. One of the things I found, and I'll just read it directly from their site, when they were talking about how to deal with you know loved ones or even your own thoughts, if you're listening right now, this is a quote, suicidal thinking is usually usually associated with problems that can be treated. People don't necessarily want to end their lives, but want to end the pain they are currently experiencing. So if you can help them find another way to solve their problem, they would choose to live. Suicide is often related to unrelated or undertreated mental health issues such as depression, which is treatable. And that brings me to, you know, uh, obviously, if you don't have a home, if you are a transgender student, if your parents are divorced, if you are, you know, experiencing grief and loss, all these things are problems that can, that have solutions in different ways. If you can find the right support group, um, that's all the work that you do on this committee is trying to help people live healthier, longer lives, right? I mean, is there any pro is there any bill that you passed that wasn't well? Okay, I'm not going to hold you to that, but <laughs> <laughs> most conversations you have are trying to help people with real problems in their lives, even if you're not successful in the state house. Absolutely. And I think when you talked about all of those things that you just listed, a lot of the work the Center for Prevention of Child Maltreatment is working on is those prevention of adverse childhood experiences, yeah. which I think kind of goes back to this whole full picture is that you have to look at it 
from not just the the end, which is maybe somebody's depressed or has suicidal ideation, but what has gotten them there? And how do we improve those things and improve life experiences to make sure that people are taken care of better? I mean, and that's my goal in the legislature is to try to work on those things. And like you said, work on people-oriented life events that can make quality of life better. Um, and then I think, too, I'll just mention, you know, I grew up in a family where my mom's a therapist. Yeah. So, you know, therapy is normal to me. Yeah. Therapy is normal part of life. And I think counseling is a wonderful thing. Having an unbiased opinion and an unbiased person that can just tell you and talk to you and listen is wonderful. And people should be embracing that. And I mm-hmm. hope that that's one thing that people could get from this call is that you should embrace the ability to seek help. And not be ashamed of it. And that 988, you know, texting, reaching out to somebody is one of those ways to seek help. That 211, if you're looking for a counselor, if you're looking for something that's more permanent. I was looking at the, you know, the privacy, the confidentiality, and the sort of disclaimers on 988 saying, well, this is not the same as coming in and sitting with a therapist who knows you. It can give you a real diagnosis. But it it is what it is, and it can give you a big start. It's also private, and nobody knows that Absolutely. you've done it. But that brings us back to, again, the House bill. Um, those resources are hard to access. I mean, every study that I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen more than I have, have said it is really hard to find a therapist, to find a counselor, to afford it. If you can't afford to, if you don't have a car, if you're at work all day, which all of us are. <laughs> yes. It can be hard to find one that meets Where is your child care if yes. you need to go? How do you get your kid out of school to, to do, a, um, you know, a therapy conversation. This is tough stuff. It is. We're far from there. How far can $2 million get us? Well, <laughs> the $2 million wasn't the only thing that I asked yeah. for. <laughs> that was one of the things I was successful in. But, yeah. you know, one of the other parts is that we have to continue to look at workforce. How are we getting more mental health providers into yeah. our state? How do we make sure that we have that that workforce that can actually do those things because you're right it can be really hard to access it especially for children and so that's one of the areas that I continue to work on and plan to keep on working on over the next however much time I have in the legislature so if you are in one of these families we're having these conversations part of the reason I think people are afraid to have conversations is because if someone says to them I mean, clearly there's the old thinking that if I bring it up, I have planted a seed in somebody's mind, which we know statistically is not true. The second thing I think most people are afraid of, if I bring it up and someone says yes, then I have to do something Mm -hmm. about that. Then now I am, and that's how I often feel about my cousin's death is, did we fail him? Where Mm -hmm. did we fail him? Where could we have done better? Where are we accountable for? And those are hard feelings. They are hard feelings. Um, we need help. It can't just be South Dakotans on their own, and that's what some of these resources are for. Absolutely. And I agree that that feeling of feeling like you could have done more or should have said something, I have those own feelings in my own life. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important to, again, bring these things to the forefront of conversation so that not only do those that are contemplating suicide have resources, but those of us that are around them have the ability to know how to intervene and where can we can send them to for help. Yeah. All right. SDSuicidePrevention.org is where I found Alana Murray resources. Representative Rayfeld suggested uh, following the Prevention Task Force on Facebook. And, of course, that 988 number or 211 um, are great links to people who are going to help you find the right resources for your family. Taylor Rayfeld, thanks so much for stopping by. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. 
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. From the first blast on June 3, 1948, Crazy Horse Memorial has been preserving and sharing culture, traditions, and the living heritage of the more than 570 tribes of North America. Now the memorial prepares to celebrate its 75th anniversary. Joining me by the phone, we have Whitney Rencounter. He's CEO of the Crazy Horse Memorial Foundation. Welcome back, Whitney. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Lori. Always a pleasure to be on with you, and thank you for taking time to visit with us about our, our big weekend upcoming here. There is so much going on. I want to make sure that we get to that, but first I'm hoping we could go back in time a little bit and tell us about Chief Henry Standing Bear and his his education at the Carlisle Indian School, which, of course, was a government boarding school. I'm not sure when you can call that an education and when you can call that an incarceration, but he had a very um, specific way that he took his time at Carlisle and turned it into the work that many of us remember him for today. Tell me about Chief Henry Standing Bear. Yeah, so Chief Henry Standing Bear, you know, I've I've been in contact with one of his great grandsons, uh, you know, who's going to be here, Dr. Harvey Ledesma, who is an optometrist in California, and uh, you know, he he has been really studying and and trying to learn more about his great grandfather, and he'll be with us uh, this weekend during the 75th anniversary to speak, and uh, Dr. Harvey Ledesma, you know, really shared that his his uh, grand great grandfather was very uh, adamant that. Uh, regardless of his experiences in boarding schools, that he did not want to leave behind his culture. He did not want to assimilate, uh, you know, into Western uh, society. Instead, he wanted to carry and and share the message of our traditional ways. So, however, he did use education for a positive. He he took a negative and turned it into a positive and, and wanted to use that experience that was out of his control in terms of attending the boarding school and uh, change it into uh, a passion to educate people so that uh, Native American uh, history, culture, way of life would not be lost. Mm. So that, that's very, that was very intentional, and, and uh, we're very, very happy to learn and, and carry on that, that message here at the memorial. Tell me why he thought the place for the memorial was the Black Hills of South Dakota. Well, obviously, you know, the, the creation story for the Lakota people, uh, you know, is, is told from the Black Hills, that this was such a important gathering places, not only for the Osheti Shakoi, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, but other tribes as well. And uh, it's just an important place, uh, you know, and, then, and also you add on to that the fact that around these conversations, Mount Rushmore was being carved. And so uh, Chief Henry Standing Bear felt like, uh, you know, they're, they're carving, uh, you know, some of the presidents here in the Black Hills. We, we need to also carve something that uh, will we'll share the message and the, the uh, you know, vision of, of indigenous people as well. So uh, that is why uh, the Black Hills was selected. Mm. When American President Calvin Coolidge comes to the Black Hills, Chief Henry Standing Bearer, honors him, but then also challenges him. It's He was not non-confrontational in his ability to hold something up to an American president and say, you have an opportunity 
to speak to truth, to speak to reconciliation. You have the opportunity to do better. What is the role of the Crazy Horse Memorial today in, uh, you know, not just raising awareness and providing education, but really challenging people to do the hard work of truth, reconciliation, and doing better? Yeah, so, you know, I I think we're going to carry on the message, the dream of Korchak Jokowski and Chief Henry Standing Bear, as as well as the first CEO, Ruth Jokowski, the late Mrs. Z. Uh, such a, uh, the, the three of them, I we believe, lo- aligned in in terms of the importance of relationships. And we, we believe that relationships matter because when we can bring people together, uh, more work can get done and, and completed when we work together, regardless if we agree on the road ahead or uh, the work that needs to be done, so on and so forth. I think we all have our own perspectives, and that's that's great. Uh, you know, but the memorial, the work here, we're, we're mission-driven. We're focused mm-hmm. on our mission, which is to protect and preserve uh, the history, the culture, the living heritage of Amer- North American tribes that uh, we want to continue moving forward into the future uh, to, to be a place that uh, brings people together and that uh, when people, we believe that when people are exposed to Native American history, culture, way of life here at the memorial, that it will inspire them after they leave, and that's when the true work begins. So that, that really is what uh, Chief Henry Standing Bear, the, the challenge that he set forth and the, the challenge that Korchak Chokovsky accepted when he dedicated his life to the carving. Tell people a little bit about Korchak, um, and then we'll talk a little bit about Ruth. But first, the sculptor himself, he could have, uh, you know, he lands on Omaha Beach. He joins the, I think he joins the military. He's like 34 years old, which is fairly old for uh, that kind of military service in World War II. He could go to Europe and work on war memorials there, and instead he ends up here dedicating really his entire life to this mountain. Um, What resonates with you about his story even today? Yeah, so what resonates uh, to me is that when Korchak made the decision to come to the Black Hills, he didn't just come to the Black Hills and, and uh, with a plan, with government funding, with with already the resources, so to speak. He came and, and uh, during his early years, when he first came to the Black Hills, when before the mountain carving started, he spent time on the Oglala Lakota uh, Reservation. And he truly got to know, uh, you know, the people there. That he developed a relationship. So he he heard loud and clear the the challenges that uh, Indigenous peoples had on on the reservation. And so he used that as motivation. He he wanted to honor. He wanted to make sure that this memorial became a humanitarian project. That it truly fulfilled the mission of why the the carving. Obviously, he wanted it to attract people here. And then when they get here. They, they can receive uh, inspiration through experiencing the culture of indigenous people and obviously the museum, the university help us to fulfill our mission. So, uh, you know, the fact that he really was in, intentional in developing those relationships with uh, tribal, you know, relatives, I think that, that says a lot about the motivation behind and, and that gave him the inspiration to, even during difficult times with the lack of resources, mm-hmm. to see forth uh, the what it what it's become today. I think it's easy to not mention Ruth because of the stature of some of the other people in the room. 
But make no mistake, after his death especially, she is well positioned to lead the memorial into the future. What resonates with you about her leadership during this time? One of the things that, uh, that one of the bedrocks of Crazy Horse Memorial has, from, from Ruth's perspective, was to make a friend first. Hmm. And she knew the importance of the memorial, the, the magnitude and, and the undertaking. And uh, so when, she, when, when folks would come here to the memorial, they were inspired, you know. And um, the fact that uh, we rely on our donor base and, and um, you know, not necessarily taxpayer funds, you know, that, that, that poses a challenge in itself, but that also gives us the freedom uh, to maintain relationships, the personal relationships. So she treated every donor, every supporter, every staff member, uh, every partner, anyone that was involved, she, she treated them all uh, and, and upheld uh, the importance of their relationship, and she really knew the importance of those relationships. She also had, you know, uh, adopted relatives amongst the tribal relatives that like the late Nally Tubols, who's a prominent Nally Tubols, part of the Sons of the Oglala singing group. She was a well-known educator, singer, culture bearer. Uh, her and, and Mrs. Z were, were adopted sisters in a traditional way. You know, there, there's so many stories about Mrs. Z and the relationship that not only her and Korchak and obviously Chief Henry Standing Bear, but the relationships that they forged between the communities, and they truly care. It's, it's evident that... Uh, Mrs. Z truly cared about people and, and relationships. And I think that that has gone a long way to really set Crazy Horse Memorial up to, to really do the work and, and fulfill our mission here. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to In the Moment on SDPB Radio, and the voice you're hearing is Whitney Rencounter. He's CEO of the Crazy Horse Memorial Foundation, and they're inviting everyone to join them uh, June 2nd through 4th at the memorial for the public 75th anniversary celebration. Uh, Whitney, beginning on Friday, there are just a ton of guests and performances and highlights. Tell us a little bit about what people can expect. Well, starting June 2nd, uh, for first of all, 75 years of uh, you know the work here at Crazy Horse Memorial. So June 2nd, there's going to be performances, there's going to be Native American uh, artists, uh, so on and so forth, that's going to take place throughout the day. Performances scheduled for 11:30, 1:30, and 4:30, and then at 6:30 we have a special, uh, you know, award-nominated uh, Aaron White and the Bluestone Project. Who Aaron White is a, is a Dene from the Navajo Nation, and um, he he is uh, nominated for many awards. He established the Bluestone Project, and he's going to be featuring John Densmore of the Doors and Jess uh, Valenzuela of Gin Blossoms. They're going to come together to to uh, share a, a concert here on the veranda on site. So that's on the 2nd. And then on June 3rd, we're going to obviously the Volks March, which is the largest uh, event for the Volks Sports Association throughout the country here at Crazy Horse Memorial. Uh, that's going to be free. Hikers will get in free that day with uh, three cans of food or more uh, for the Share and Care Food Drive, something that Mrs. Z established you know, long ago. Uh, and then we're going to have a private rededication ceremony. We wanted to have the public celebration that day, but because of the Volksmarch, it would be nearly impossible with the amount of people on site. So the Volksmarch is only one day this year on that Saturday, June 3rd, mm-hmm. and the Volksmarch will not be happening on June 4th. So so let the public know and share with all your family and friends 
the June 4th is going to be slated and, and established for the public celebration where uh, that's going to be starting at 10 a.m. and then going throughout the day till about 4.30. We're going to have Billy Mills as our keynote speaker, uh, tribal partners, uh, tribal chairman that will be here to give and, uh, you know, share their work. Obviously, we're going to share about our the Mountain Museum, the university, the work that we do here. Uh, we're going to have performances, some uh, some speech, you know, uh, speaking engagements, and and uh, some of the history of the Crazy Horse family, uh, Dewey Beard, the descendants of the Battle of Little Bighorn, will be on site. The the staff and so on and so forth. And then we're also going to have a Lakota helicopter flyover. So it's a it's going to be a, a good day here at the memorial. Good weekend overall. Yeah, I think everyone listening knows that. But if you're new to South Dakota, Billy Mills is a very well-known Olympic gold medal winner. And uh, Whitney, I know you well enough, I think, to know that somehow you will navigate this uh, long list of events and coordination and uh, crowds and, and just making sure all the logistics are handled. But you will come out of this with deeper relationships with the maid. I would just be tired at the end of the week. (laughs) (laughs) How do you prepare yourself to go into something like this and say, it is about making a friend. It is about building a relationship. Don't forget the mission, why we're here. Don't focus so much on, you know, the line for food and focus instead on um, those connections. How how do you do that? Yeah, you're exactly right. You know, uh, we have such a great opportunity here at Crazy Horse Memorial to be a role model for other organizations out there that would like to continue to support and educate people about North American tribes and uh, to become a resource. And I think we're really excited about the mission of Crazy Horse Memorial. And, um, you know, you're you're exactly right. I think our relationships, the, the donors, the staff, the supporters, all those that have supported Crazy Horse Memorial through the years, we have such a great opportunity and during this time. So, uh, yes, it's going to be a long weekend, and it's been a lot of planning. I want to say thank you to Amanda Alcock and our staff, our you know media director here, and as well as do uh, Bad Warrior Ganji uh, for, for really helping to lead the charge in terms of planning, and, and all of our staff. However, you're right. I think those relationships and, and uh, the support, of, of our of our base has really helped us lift us up during this time. Yeah. Well, if you would like to know more about the Crazy Horse Memorial 75th anniversary weekend, go to crazyhorsememorial.org. We'll put a link up at our website. You can also call 605-673-4681. Whitney Rencounter, always a delightful time to be in conversation with you and hear your voice on the radio. Thank you. Lori, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota Public Broadcasting History. On this day in 1922, South Dakota Public Broadcasting began radio programming for the first time. The University of South Dakota held the broadcast license with the original call letters WEAJ beginning in 1923. The radio state call letters were changed to KUSD in 1925. The station was one of the oldest educational radio stations in the U.S. E.O. Lawrence and USD Dean Lewis Ackley were largely responsible for putting this historic station on the air. Lawrence was a USD student at the time, and he would go on to win a Nobel Prize in physics. 
through the 1970s and 1980s, what we know as the South Dakota Public Radio Network expanded and built nine radio stations and ten radio translators across the state. It was the 1920s. The primary objective of radio service was to provide programs of a general educational, informational, and cultural nature. KUSD Television went on the air in 1961. It was the first educational television station in the state. It is now the flagship television station for the SDPB network. Along with expanding into television, SDPB relocated a transmitter and secured a major power increase for KUSD-TV. We created two more stations. Those were KBHE in Rapid City and KESD near Brookings. A managing board of directors was created to oversee growth of the network. Martin Bush was the first executive director, and Jim Prussia was chief engineer. They worked toward the organization's mandate to construct a system such that every school across the state would have access to in-school instructional television programs. Additional TV stations completed the network in the 1970s. In October 2010, SDPB dedicated the Vermilion TV studio in honor of Martin Bush. In addition to his early leadership of the organization, he also hosted the longtime radio series, The Bookshop. But it was on this day in 1922, SDPB began programming for the first time on radio. Production assistance for this day in South Dakota history comes from Brad Tennant, professor of history at Presentation College. Coming up after the break, the cultural history of the spoken word. Dr. Joshua Bennett is with us. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. As a professor of poetry, Joshua Bennett is less likely to ask his students what a poem means and more likely to ask where is the heat in that poem. Bennett's new book is called Spoken Word, A Cultural History. And the last time he joined us on In the Moment, when I learned his next topic would probe the cafes and protests and poetry slams of spoken word, I waited with reverent anticipation for him to finish that work and send it into the world. And that book is now in my hands, and I am better for it. Dr. Joshua Bennett is an award-winning poet, author, professor, slam champion. He first joined us to talk about his moving poetry collection, Ode. His other books and collections include The Sobbing School, Being Property, Once Myself, and The Study of Human Life. And he returns to the show to talk about spoken word, a cultural history. Dr. Bennett, welcome back. Lori, thank you so much for having me back on. The reception for this book has been wonderful, and we didn't have you on right away because I wanted to make sure it was me that got to talk to you selfishly (laughs) and that I I had time to really dive into the book and not just give it a quick turn every page kind of read. Thank you for this. Thank you. Of course, and thank you for reading it. I appreciate that a lot. Talk about this um, when you work as a professor. I think you're now at MIT the the heat in a poem when students read poetry or hear poetry sometimes 
maybe it's harder if you read it on the page to not just say, what does that mean? Why do you sort of uh, guide students in that direction? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And thank you, too. I feel like that story just came out via MIT News a couple <laughs> of days ago. So yeah. thank you for uh, always on top of the research. It means a lot. So, yeah, that's actually a, a teaching tactic that I got from a, a workshop with Terrence Hayes that I took many years ago, uh, I think around 2015. And I just remember being so struck by the question because you're right. It's very different from what does this poem mean? What does it make you think of? Whereas the heat is really something much more elemental, right? It's asking you what, what strikes you about this poem. Sometimes I follow up that question with uh, what is strange, what is beautiful, what is familiar. And I really just want that to be a, a gesture of invitation, right? A way to say, you don't have to have all the terminology right <laughs> right now. Just tell me what's moving you, what jumps out to you, and let's begin the conversation there. One of the things that struck me about your life, because this is a cultural history of spoken word, but it's also very much your history, and it begins quite young with hearing people in church, for example. I think a lot of people around here, so before we go into that experience for you, a lot of people around here, if they're like me, had zero experiences of that growing up. Even in church, the sermons were read where I went to worship. So you would see a pastor behind a lectern and there would be a sermon that he, mm -hmm. usually he, had written out and would then deliver in a way that was, I'm not criticizing it, I'm just saying I never had that experience. Um, what is right. spoken word then? Oh, wow. Well, that, that's a great question. Uh, spoken word for me, uh, at least for the purposes of the book, but I think this is the way I thought about it in some ways for a long time, is about poetry that is written to be recited, right? And sometimes even it's, it's read aloud from a piece of paper, but quite often it's, it's memorized. And the idea is that spoken word is poetry that treats the art form like it's always a social occasion, right? And it also treats language like something that is perhaps most beautiful when it's given to the air. And so I, I grew up around a, a range of different preachers growing up, but most of them yeah, you had the sense that maybe even if they had a couple of notes, most of what they were doing was some combination of, you know, memorization, improvisation, and then uh, something that was maybe almost untrackable <laughs> or, or unsayable, something numinous, kind of just pulling language from the air and leaving room for, for the spirit to take them in, in whatever direction it, it wanted or needed to. And so for me, spoken word brings together all of them not just in my own life, but in the archive that I, I turned to. I mean, these were people who were Shakespeare scholars. Some of them were playwrights. Some of them were preachers or the sons of preachers. This was the case with Saul Williams or the daughters of preachers. And I was fascinated by that, that, that all of us were drawn to this truly ancient art form, but that in the form of something like spoken word or in a game like Poetry Slam, takes on this uh, distinctly modern shape and texture. That's really what I was trying to trace in the book. Yeah. So speaking of Shakespeare scholars, uh, tell us about Miguel Algarin and <laughs> how he, you know, he's not a bridge from, you know, the, the academy to the street. He is something like entirely new in some ways. And you meet him and you don't, you know, he shows up in your life. And you're right. not, you know, you didn't necessarily know every, you know, everything about him. Tell me about Miguel. Yeah, I mean, I first met Miguel when I was a teenage boy, hmm. right? And, and as far as I knew, he was just a very thoughtful audience member at the New York <laughs> Poets Cafe. And 
at the time, nobody took me aside to say, well, hey, Josh, you know, the guy started the place, right, <laughs> that it began in the mid-70s in his living room. And then in part because he had, you know, the day job that I have now, right, he was a professor, uh, people were staying in his living room a bit too late. You know, people were staying until midnight, until one or two in the morning. And so he made the decision that they, they needed a brick and mortar space in which to recite their beautiful poems and beautiful plays. And so Miguel Algarin founded, you know, the New Eurekan Poets Cafe alongside 19 other poets and playwrights, some of whom you might know, you know, people like Ntozaki Shange, you know, uh, the incredible black feminist poet and playwright, people like Miguel Pinheiro, the incredible uh, Puerto Rican poet and playwright, and, and many others, people like Lucky Cienfuegos, you know, Tato La Viera. I mean, a really incredible, diverse group of folks, a number of whom I also interviewed for the, the book, like the poet Sandra Marie Estevez. And really, you know, Miguel was someone, I love what you said there. It's not so much, I think, that he was a bridge, but rather that his life was, was an intersection, right? In his own language, Shakespeare was a New Yorican to him, right? That Shakespeare had played a part in his life, and he saw himself as working for Shakespeare uh, in the same way that Shakespeare worked for him. He taught Shakespeare classes, you know, at Rutgers and at Brooklyn College, and at night, he hosted this this living room salon and that eventually helped create the new Eurekan scene that so many of us knew and loved. And he, he really was a, a polymath like few others. You know, he was able to pull in kind of the poets and the playwrights while doing that, that work himself and holding all of it together. What did you learn from him about being a slam poet? He didn't give you, you say in the book, you know, a step one, step two, step three, or, or critique on a certain poem, but he gave you a lot through feedback all the same. What did he offer you? I mean, one, it meant a lot to be remembered because there were also times, and this isn't so much in the book, but when I came back as a, you know, a 20-something, fresh out of college, and, uh, and Miguel was still there. And it meant a lot to know that he remembered me or any of my performances. The Miguel that I rediscovered through the archival research for this book, though, I think taught me something else, which is that um, it's as important to be a, a conduit <laughs> as it is to be a, a kind of conductor, right? I think it's easy to think of him as, as kind of the, the leader of, of a, a certain version of the New Yorkian school, but I think it also seemed like he imagined himself as just someone who was trying to make space for his gifted friends to shine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an incredible lesson uh, for an educator, for a writer, to say as much as, you know, I hope people love my books and <laughs> love it when I get on stage and recite my work, part of my job is actually to sometimes step back and just create space for other people to do their good work in the world. And I think Miguel really was a model for that mm. during his life on Earth. I love that. I think we spoke about this before. It's a more of a, a well-known story that you're an undergrad and you are invited to perform at the White House for President Barack Obama, then President Obama, and uh, the First Lady and other dignitaries. And on page nine, this early in the book, in the introduction, you say, I learned something fundamentally true about why being a poet was important to me and why I would have to engage with this art form for the rest of my life. It left me nowhere to hide. It forced me to confront my guilt, my pain, and all my shortcomings. It demanded that I give an account. (sighs) (laughs) What does it do for the listener then to be in the room while the poet is carrying that kind of responsibility into the space? My hope, you know, I think 
at the best, we can be a mirror for each other, right? One of the, the most beautiful things, I think, about that experience at the White House is that they, they videotape. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. My guest is Dr. Joshua Bennett. Um, we're talking about his book, Spoken Word, A Cultural History. I think we just lost him for a second here. Dr. Bennett, can you hear me? All right, we're going to do some work on that for the remainder of the show. We'll give him a call back. Um, in the meantime, just a few things in case you don't know about In the Moment. You listen to us here at noon central, 11 mountain every day. But then we bring the show to you again at 7 mountain, 6 central. So you, if you miss something, if you're listening to something and you want to hear it again or you want to share it with a friend, you um, can tune in again at 7 o'clock central, 6 mountain on SDPB radio. And, of course, we also have a podcast. We take the show, we break it down into segments and share it with you online at SDPB dot org slash news and then it's a podcast where you can subscribe so you never miss an episode a little bit about what's coming up on tomorrow's in the moment let's take a look at that while we work to reconnect with uh, professor bennett it's wednesday and that means we're going to talk with our dakota political junkies and uh, we're going to talk about the governor's uh, letter to the Board of Regents about what she thinks the universities can do better in South Dakota education. Pretty controversial uh, launch of that information last week. Hopefully we have Joshua Bennett back on the line. Can you hear me? I can. Wonderful. I'm so sorry. I'm not sure what happened. We lost you right at the moment where you were saying that they videotaped that. So if you could just start there with that thought. You're in the White House. <laughs> They're doing, sure, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, and then we'll, yeah, it. yeah, go ahead. Start there again, please. Yeah, it's that uh, they videotaped it. And part of what that meant was that for the next 10 years, I got letters and uh, emails uh, and inbox messages saying, this poem helped me fix my relationship with my father hmm. or with my big sister or with my students or my, my best friend. And I never would have imagined that <laughs> when I was on stage as a 20 year old, as a college junior, I was just trying to remember the words. You know, yeah. this part wasn't yeah. on stage, but my mother had gone over the poem three or four times with me before I touched the stage that night. And I never could have fathomed that it would go out over the internet and that uh, hundreds of thousands of people would see it and that it would mean anything to them. But I do think in some ways that experience really does reflect what poetry makes possible, right? Which is that an individual person's story can actually reflect and refract uh, out in a, in a million different directions and, and reach people in a bunch of different ways and, and mean things to them that that single poet couldn't imagine in advance. Yeah. And that brings us to the digital revolution. And we just have about a minute left. But I said at the top of the hour, like, I grew up with none of this. I am much older when I even know what slam poetry is or when I hear anything that would pass as spoken word. But now, today, through YouTube, through the Internet, you can't stop it. And it is, um, that is a powerful, powerful thing. What's the future of slam poetry, of spoken word, online? Oh, hmm. I don't know. This is so yeah. interesting. I was just talking to my friend Will over lunch, and I was saying one of the beautiful and, terrifying and compelling things I've been thinking about the future recently is that it doesn't exist yet. 
yeah. uh, we're always making it together in a blur of a seemingly infinite presence. And so it's hard to say. It, I mean, I imagine it'll live perhaps on TikTok or a number of, of other forms. I mean, there, there's quite a bit of, of an audience for spoken word in spaces like TikTok and still on YouTube. But I think young people will do things we can't possibly imagine with this form. You know, I think the venues of the future will in some ways look completely different, but may very well look just like Miguel Algarin's living room salon. And wouldn't yeah. that be something? Yeah. You know, I actually think that, especially when I talk to my students, I mean, they're very much in the pursuit of something that feels real, mm-hmm. that feels textured and undeniable and transcendent. And so my sense is that actually the, the future of spoken word might be something like a throwback. It, it might be the kind of intimate venues again, people's homes, people's backyards, people's uh, spaces of worship. And I think we're going to see poetry that, uh, you know, here I'm, I'm riffing a bit on, on yeah. there, you know, but poetry that's made for the measure of the world. I want uh, to the problems that, that they're facing, you know, and the joys too. I want to make sure people know the book is called Spoken Word, A Cultural History. My guest has been Dr. Joshua Bennett. Joshua, thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for having me.